Well, it was in June 1991, a memorial stone that you see there, a seven foot high slab of red granite from the Isle of Mull, no less, was unveiled in Weifang in China, and this marked the setting up of the Eric Liddell Foundation there. And sorry, I couldn't make it any bigger, but that was the best I could get. You can't see the, the writing there. But on the front in gold letters, the bare facts of Eric Liddell's life, that great Scotsman, are laid out. And on the back of it, there is a verse of scripture that really explains what motivated and drove this great Scottish missionary stroke athlete. And it's Isaiah 40, verse 31. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. And it's a verse that's often associated with Eric Liddell, the flying Scotsman, due mainly to a scene, I think, in the film Chariots of Fire, uh, which was uh, a great film, wasn't it? And in this particular scene, Liddell is depicted on the Sunday of Olympic Week 1924, at the Scotskirk in Paris, reading the scripture lesson. There's uh, something of how it looked, if you can see it there in the film, with Ian Charlson playing Eric Liddell. And uh, he was reading the scripture lesson from Isaiah 40. And the screenwriter in the movie very effectively blends the reading of that portion of scripture in the Scotskirk in Paris to uh, events that were going on at the same time in the Olympic Stadium in uh, Paris. It's particularly striking when it comes to the last three verses of Isaiah 40 in the authorised version as they use it there. He giveth power to the faint and to them that have no might he increaseth strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary and young men shall utterly fall. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary, they shall walk and not be faint. And though this, in this uh, scene in the film is actually a fictionalised incident, loosely based on the fact that Eric Liddell did, in fact, preach in the Scotskirk in Paris on the following Sunday after the Olympics, it does powerfully draw out the contrast between the pursuit of mere earthly glory and the pursuit of something altogether higher, as seen in the case of Eric Liddell. And the contrast is clear, as it's uh, depicted in the film. We see the best of human athletes falling in exhaustion to the dirt of the track, utterly spent and burnt out. And then it switches back across to the church, and we see Liddell, who, by the way, is faster than any of them in church, at worship, pointing to the one who renews strength and who strengthens the weak. Those that wait upon the Lord are seen to have far higher purpose and significance and meaning than those who merely compete for earthly glory. And so Isaiah 40 assures us that there is something greater than earthly glory to strive for, that there is hope for failing weary souls. Isaiah 40, and especially these verses there that we read, 28 to 31, is a wonderful word of comfort and hope for weary souls. And the context in which these four verses are found confirms this. This is about comfort and hope 
for weary souls. So let's just take a moment to locate ourselves here in the book of Isaiah and to see the context in which this passage comes. Isaiah was a prophet, as you know. He was a prophet during tumultuous times in the history of God's old covenant nation of Israel. And his job was to declare God's message to the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom of Israel had already fallen to the Assyrians in 722 BC. And the southern kingdom was heading headlong into a similar disaster as well. And so this book of Isaiah contains his prophetic messages. And it's a massive book and so the the scholars like to break it down into smaller, more studyable chunks. And so what they do is look at chapters 1 to 39 which are reckoned to be uh, God's messages of judgment. And so 1 to 39 is sometimes known as the book of judgment. And then verses 40 through 66 contain more messages of hope. And so are known as the book of comfort. Messages of comfort, I should have said, known as the book of comfort. So Isaiah is given a message of, of judgment to declare. But he is also enabled by God to look out beyond The judgment that he has uh, declared in the immediate future. To see something out there beyond that. A future restoration. So as well as judgment he can declare hope. And it is therefore in its original context a great message for the weary. To a disobedient and faithless people. Who have rebelled against God generation after generation. To a people facing judgment in the form of foreign invasion. And national destruction and exile. To a people, verse 27, who are actually beginning to doubt God and his presence with them and his purposes for them. To such a people as that, the word maybe is unexpected. The word is of comfort. That's how uh, chapter 40, verse 1 begins. Comfort, comfort my people. It's one of comfort. It's one of good tidings in verse 9. And it's one of hope. Here in verse 31. And I can tell you that certainly in my own life and experience. I have found great comfort and hope in these verses here. It's a wonderful passage from God's word. And it's a passage that I often read in a funeral service. To provide comfort and hope for weary and struggling souls. Willing to wait upon the Lord. So let's consider these few verses together in our time tonight. And as we do. I trust we will be able to see something of the comfort and the hope and the encouragement that comes from simply seeing who God is, which we find in verse 28, and what God gives, which we find in verses 29 to 31. So the beginning of that is uh, who God is. In verse 28, Isaiah reminds his listeners of who God is. He asks, do you not know? Have you not heard? And so to those who have been feeling, as per verse 27, disregarded by God and estranged from God, Isaiah doesn't actually offer any new or fresh insights. Instead, he goes back and he reminds these people of the things that they already know. That's uh, what the preacher's task very often is, to remind their listener of things that they already know. And it's always right to be thinking of God and all that he is. And it's always problematic and troublesome to be taking our mind off of God and who he is. And so to weary souls, 
who are dismayed. Isaiah says, don't you know your God? Haven't you heard who he is? And as Isaiah says that to them back then, then we can take that for ourselves right now and apply it to our own situations and the things that weary us. We can think of our our civil governing authorities and their godless politics. We can think of our own personal situation, career or job prospects or stability, family situations, perhaps family tensions, health issues that can drag on seemingly endlessly. Whatever we're facing, whatever frustrations and anxieties come along and afflict us, this scripture is saying to us gently and firmly, don't you know your God? In the midst of all that's going on, don't you know your God? Haven't you heard just who he is? And it's no mere platitude or soundbite from the prophet that we're being given here. Because sometimes well-intentioned people, well-meaning people might come and try to comfort you with some words of comfort or advice or whatever. And right there and then it seems good and it seems helpful and it seems to make a difference. Then you go home and you're lying in your bed at night And you maybe come to realize, actually, there wasn't so much of any significance there. Actually, there wasn't really so much to help me. It just turned out to be empty words. But it will always do us good if we love the Lord, if we're walking with him. It will always do us good to be taken back to what we have actually heard before. Don't you know? Haven't you heard? Yeah, but somebody says, don't you know what? Haven't you heard what? Well, come into verse 28 and see the four great facts about God and his being that are revealed there for your encouragement. And yes, I'm sure there are things you've heard before, but they are things that you will never tire of hearing, things that you can count on, things that will never change, things that we need to be reminded of. And the first is that God is simply the everlasting God. Something that's just stated and celebrated throughout the scriptures. God just is. That's what his name tells us. His name by which he revealed himself to Moses. Yahweh. I am. Just a great statement of God's existence. He has no beginning and no end. He is the same yesterday, today and forever. And we notice, as we say that, it's the covenant name of God that is being used here in this passage where you see the word Lord capitalized in that way. Then it's the name of God, Yahweh, that is behind that in the original language. Yahweh, the God of the covenant, of the promise, the one who has bound himself to his people graciously in his love and promised never to leave them or abandon them, who has promised to lead them on to their promised inheritance. Yahweh. God is eternal, the everlasting God. He reigns forever and his kingdom is forever. He is the everlasting God. Added to that, we see that he is the creator of the ends of the earth. Nothing exists that he did not put there. His domain is over everything. Nothing that occurs is outside of the scope of his control. Just as his being and reign has no limit of time, neither does it have limit of geography or space. As Abraham Cooper said of Christ, who reigns over all, there is not a square inch 
in the whole dominion of our human existence, over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. It is all his, for he made it all. Third, God is the omnipotent God. He will not grow tired or weary. And that's a great thing, isn't it? Uh, That a message of hope for weary souls assures us that God will never be weary. He never will be. And so therefore all that we look to him for is secure. Salvation, which is decisively accomplished through the cross of Christ, is secure. And all that flows from that, God's provision for us spiritually and in other ways, his presence with us to guide us and to sanctify us and to lead us on to our heavenly home. If God is omnipotent as he certainly is, if God is all-powerful, then we, his people, need not fear, for we are safe in the shelter of the shadow of his wing. Then, fourthly, we see that God is the omniscient God. His understanding, no one can fathom. There are times we cannot understand the world around about us. Times we cannot understand our present personal experience or situation. We often don't understand certain circumstances, but God always does. God never learns anything, for he knows all things. I remember as a child, there were things, there were times when I didn't understand things, times when I'd got into some situation, times when there didn't seem any hope or any way out of some disaster. But then I would eventually, having put this off, put it off, put it off, eventually have to go and fess up, as they say, confess to my mother or my father. And the thing was that that thing which had seemed so enormous and irresolvable to my childlike mind was just swept away by a bit of parental wisdom. No problem at all. They could easily resolve the situation. That didn't, didn't mean there was never punishment as well at the same time for transgression. But it was a bit of parental wisdom was able to very quickly and easily resolve a situation that my childish mind would have despaired of. So how much more then, when perplexed today as we are now, Ought we to take our situations to God and entrust ourselves to our Heavenly Father and our circumstances to Him who knows all and whose understanding is far over and above and beyond our own? Don't you know? Haven't you heard? This weary souls is your God, the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth, who will not grow tired or weary. And whose understanding no one can fathom. And so having fixed our eyes on God and who he is. The prophet now underlines what it is that God gives to his people. What God gives to them. What does he give? He gives strength to the weary. And he gives power to the weak. From his own inexhaustible supplies of strength and power. God supplies all of our needs. And so as we put verses 28 and 29 together, we can see the wonderful truth that it's what God is in himself that he gives to his people who seek him. 
God never grows tired or weary, as verse 28 says. And so verse 29, from his limitless stores of strength and power, he gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Now, clearly God does not convey to us all of his divine attributes, all of his strength. He will, he will not make us omnipotent. He will not make us omniscient. That would hardly be possible or right or even desirable. But what an encouraging word for us right now. That it is with God's own divine power and strength. That we are strengthened and empowered. And so therefore, as we think of our own lives. As we think of the things that perplex us and cause us anxiety. And as we bring in God's empowerment and God's strength to us. What is it that we have to face that we cannot face up to with that kind of power and with that kind of enabling? Alas, too often we look to our own limited, finite human resources in trying to work our way out of trials and difficulties. The folly of that is highlighted here in verse 30 as we are shown the limitations of human strength and ability. Even youths grow tired and weary, Isaiah says. And young men stumble and fall. Youths and young men, Isaiah says. That is to say, those who physically should be at the peak of their power and strength. Even they can grow tired and weary, can stumble, can fall, can lose their strength, can be cut down even in their prime. Think about the recent London Olympic Games a year ago. Young men and women, by the way, at the height of their powers, at the peak of physical fitness, finest of their generation. But did you see the British triathlete throwing up all over the place immediately after the end of his race? Or did you read about Chris Hoy, the cyclist, who admitted in the media that he trains so hard that he falls on the floor in the fetal position and vomits at the end of it all. Or even worse, the past couple of years, which has seen footballers in Italy and in Sweden, young men, professional athletes, the fittest of their generation, collapse and die on the field of play because their hearts gave in. Even young men stumble. And fall. It's a pretty blunt way to make the point that human power, even at its most impressive, is finite, is limited. Contrast now with God, the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth, who does not grow tired or weary. How foolish we are when we try with finite Limited, easily exhaustible reserves of human wisdom and strength and ability to overcome the difficulties of the day. And all the more foolish, Isaiah goes on to show, because there is a better way. And that better way is revealed in verse 31, where the prophet introduces the idea of waiting upon the Lord. Youths grow tired and weary, young men stumble and fall, but... Those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. The NIV has it, those who hope in the Lord. The King James Version has those who wait upon the Lord. 
And they're both right, really. Both words together convey what Isaiah is driving at here. We wait, hopefully, that is in the sure and certain biblical definition of hope. We wait, hopefully, and we hope patiently in God. Waiting is an important discipline in the Christian life, you know. But an inherently difficult discipline to get right and to master. Some of us, just by our, our nature, our temperament, are prone to rush in to something without waiting at all. Whereas others will be more naturally going to hold back and wait. And wait. And wait some more and maybe never do anything at all. That's just a temperamental thing. But waiting and how we wait is very important in the Christian life. But are you good at it? Are you good at waiting, I wonder, just generally? I heard about a guy who went into his local corner shop one day to buy a bag of cookies plus ingredients to make a batch of cookies. And the friendly sales assistant asked him if he was buying the cookies in case his homemade ones didn't turn out very well. And he replied, no, no, they're for me to eat while I'm waiting for the other ones to bake. Which uh, I don't think is a brilliant definition of what it means to wait patiently, is it? How we wait is important. There is positive benefit to be gained from our true and right waiting upon the Lord. It's a song that we sometimes sing and sometimes listen to on a CD in the car that says, strength will rise as we wait upon the Lord. And that's a true lyric. Strength does rise as we wait upon God. We learn about God as we wait upon the Lord. We learn about ourselves as we wait upon the Lord. So how can we wait then in such a way as will provide all this benefit? By the way, sometimes you have no choice but to wait. Sometimes that's all you can do. Nothing else for it. And then wisdom is to accept that situation and keep looking to the Lord. Other times the wisdom is in discerning that the time for action has not yet come. And until clear guidance or direction comes, we wait patiently for the Lord and for his timing. But the thing is, in these circumstances, we're not just to wait passively. Waiting does not equal paralysis, does not equal inactivity, does not equal laziness. Waiting is more like prayerful as we seek to keep connected to God. A right waiting is devotional as we keep on before God in worship and in his word. And waiting is practical as we keep on in serving God and others in Christ's name. And such waiting upon the Lord will neither get ahead of God and try to force his hand as if we were calling the shots, nor will it lag behind when it's clear that the time for action has come. George Campbell Morgan, who preceded Martin Lloyd-Jones at Westminster Chapel, wrote very helpfully once about waiting. And he said, Waiting for God is not laziness. Waiting for God is not going to sleep. Waiting for God is not the abandonment of effort. Waiting for God, he said, means first, activity under command. Second, 
readiness for any new command that may come. And third, the ability to do nothing until the command is given. Very practically helpful from Mr. Campbell Morgan. And as practically helpful as that is, perhaps the last word should be given to Scripture itself on the subject of waiting upon the Lord for the 130th Psalm, verses 5 and 6. says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I put my hope. And it goes on, my soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. And so we see that the waiting is accompanied by a firm hope in God's word. And it's marked by an eagerness and expectancy as we wait for him to come to us. And so then as we hope in and wait upon the Lord, what happens? Well, we find renewed strength in him. Verse 31, those who hope in the Lord, it says, will renew their strength. And the poet is beautiful thing as Isaiah continues. They will soar on wings like eagles. They'll run and not grow weary. They'll walk and not be faint. And the Hebrew word behind the English word renew in verse 31 is a word that really means a total exchange. A total exchange. So in other words, our own human strength for whatever that's worth is taken and in exchange we receive God's divine strength to empower and equip and enable us which enables us to discover as Paul the Apostle found in Philippians 4 that we can do all things through him who gives us strength. So as our strength is renewed it's a wonderful description. Soaring on wings like eagles. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? To soar on wings like eagles. You know the interesting thing about eagles is that they know when a storm is coming. They can perceive. They must have some sort of sense thing that tells them that the storm is coming. And an eagle will fly to some high spot and wait for the winds to come. And when the storm hits, the eagle will set its wings so that the wind picks it up and lifts it up above the storm. And so while the storm rages below, the eagle soars up above. So the eagle, this is the point, the eagle doesn't escape the storm. It simply uses the storm to lift it higher. It rides on the winds that bring the storm. And Isaiah says that we are blessed with that gift from God that enables us to ride the winds of the storm. Sickness, the tragedy, the disappointment, the whatever. And soar above it all. We soar on wings like eagles. We run and not grow weary. And to think about that, we can do no better really than return to the thought that we began with tonight. Which is the thought of Eric Liddell, the flying Scotsman. Not just in his races, which he said himself that he ran and the strength that God supplied... He said, uh, he was once asked how he managed to run the 400 metres. He said, well, I run the first 200 as fast as I possibly can. And then for the second 200, with God's help, I run faster. That's great, isn't it? That's how he said he ran. In the strength that God supplied. And for his glory. He said that he felt God's pleasure when he ran. But it's not just in his races, but in his whole life. 
Little could be said to have run and not grown weary. That life that was marked by a composure and an humility and an ordinary down-to-earthness that is rarely seen. And though Little's life was neither long, he died at the age of 45 in a Japanese internment camp long before uh, those who had been contemporary with him and had gone on to gain the benefit of fame and fortune gained through Olympic success had uh, made their fortune. He died at the age of 45 as a Japanese prisoner. His life was neither long nor was it easy for he was separated from his family in China and he never got to see his third daughter. She was born after he had died. Yet it could be said of little in a way it could be said of very few people that he did not grow weary in the race. He ran and didn't grow weary. And the third thing there was to walk and not be faint, wasn't it? Thus has it always been that the people of God, walking in the strength that the Lord their God supplies, can keep on and keep on before him. We see it throughout scripture. We see it in Moses, who was greatly comforted and assured to hear God's promise. I will be with you. Joshua got the same thing. As I was with Moses so I will be with you. Gideon got that as well. So did Jeremiah. And we see it down through Christian history as well. In the fact that so many, maybe the majority of those who have been significantly used by God in the building of his kingdom have had very real trials and weaknesses to overcome. George Whitfield, for example, lifelong asthma sufferer. Charles Spurgeon suffered nerves and depression throughout his significant life. Calvin, John Calvin, reformer, endured just about every disease known to man in an extremely unhealthy life. Yet, they all waited upon the Lord and in so doing, discovered the truth of the promise that those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. So there we have it. A wonderful message of comfort and hope for weary souls. And I don't know that maybe tonight some of us sitting here feel like our strength is all gone and we don't know where to turn. Maybe there's a problem that seems insurmountable and all-consuming in our lives. Maybe the going is so tough and we've been struggling just to get to this point and we don't know how we can go on. If that's how it is for you, then I hope you've heard Isaiah's message tonight. As he urges you to remember who God is. The everlasting God. The creator of the ends of the earth. Who will not grow weary. And whose understanding none can fathom. Remember who God is. And remember what God gives. Strength to the weary. Power to the weak. As we wait in hope upon the Lord. Put your whole hope in him. And you will find him to be more than able. To meet all of your needs. You remember that the Saviour Jesus himself promised rest to weary souls who would come in faith to him. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest, he said. And then, with souls having trusted in Christ for salvation, we do find that God renews our strength. So that we soar on wings like eagles. We may run without growing weary. And walk 
without fainting. Until such time as the Christ who has saved us returns. And then it will all be absolute. Soaring, running, walking with infinite and inexhaustible strength. Let us give thanks to God now as we come before him in prayer. Almighty God, we all know what it is to be weary, to struggle, to feel hopeless and inadequate, to tremble, to be anxious. And so we therefore thank you for this reminder from your word tonight, that we may look to you, that we may put our whole trust in you, that we may hear what Isaiah was saying back these three millennia ago and take it to ourselves too for you O God are unchanging and so grant O Lord that we might indeed be focused on you the great God, the creator of the ends of the earth who does not grow weary whose understanding none can fathom grant that we might indeed look to you O God for all things in order that we might be encouraged to remember that you are the God who strengthens your people, who gives us hope, who gives us a future, and who promises not only to give us all that, but to personally be with us always. So may it be, O Lord, that we leave here this night encouraged and enabled, knowing that we go in the strength of the Lord, and that in Christ... The weak are strong, the poor are made rich, and that with God all things are possible. So hear us as we offer all thanks and praise to you for your great and gracious goodness and kindness to us. You surely do all things well, O Lord. Bless us, we pray, and tarry with us as we sing our responsive praise to you. In Jesus' name. Amen.